On this Can't Turn It Off edition of Random Assignment, the NBC Today Show talks about the mental health impact school shutdowns are having on kids. New York City Mayor de Blasio surprises parents that schools will be shut down, oh, tomorrow. And a local Florida television report only has airtime for anti-charter school opinions. Even some exciting personal news from one of your beloved co-hosts in this edition of Random Assignment. Welcome to the Random Assignment Podcast. I'm Bob Dowden, and that's Corey DeAngelis. How are you doing, Corey? Hey, Bob. Doing pretty well. Looks like we have a media bias going on in the K-12 education space. You, see, I, that's a, you hear oh. the thumb, a thumb on the scale. This is actually an index finger on the scales oh. to say, hey, we want to push schools to close despite the evidence, <laughs> some places <laughs> anyway, that parents want schools open. Well, um, schools aren't super spreaders, are they? Isn't that what uh, Emily Oster, Brown University economist, uh, just wrote about in the Atlantic? Sure. I, I was well, just going to ask you about: Have you seen? Have you been following what's going on in New York City? I have. So today, just, uh, I mean, just so just today, <laughs> uh, if people are watching this live, which is on Wednesday, uh, the uh, governor, the mayor, Mayor De Blasio, uh, announced schools would be closing tomorrow and in fact delayed the press conference five hours oh, no. all these parents in the lurch to try to find out what's going to happen tomorrow with my kids i have to make plans i we can't just find out you know three seconds before all the schools are closed i mean i guess sometimes there are snowstorms where it happens overnight but at any rate uh the five mayor got a lot delay. of pushback pardon go ahead five-hour delay or four or five-hour delay on the press conference. And what was interesting to me is there was a different conference going on with the governor and the reporters kept asking, hey, we're hearing this stuff about the New York City schools closing. Are they closing? And Cuomo, I wish I had the uh, the uh, the video clip because he's getting all upset with the reporters. He's like, he's like, well, you tell me, are the schools closing tomorrow? Are they closing tomorrow? Is it at 3%? No. So he wouldn't answer. And then he was like getting oh. frustrated about it. And then he pretty much said that they're not going to close tomorrow because, well, it's not a 3% yet, so it's not going to close tomorrow. And then right when he gets off of his, it's just going all through the media on Twitter. And then de Blasio starts talking, close the schools <laughs> because they hit 3.00%, uh, which was their threshold. And I thought I had the screen open, but yeah, here, check this out in the tweet. I, I pulled the... Uh, a clip from the Blasio uh, just right before this. He said, you know, coronavirus positivity in New York City has hit exactly 3.0%. And as a result, we do need to close our schools. He turns it over to his uh, school's chancellor, which starts with, who starts with uh, this gym right here. He says, our schools have opened and been remarkably safe with a 0.19% positivity rate. They've also they've also been safe havens for our children. And then he ends his statement by saying, well, so we feel a deep sense of commitment to making sure we can open for in-person learning again as soon as it is physically safe. He contradicted himself. You just said that the schools are remarkably safe with a 0.19% positivity yep. rate. And then, oh, well, uh, yeah, this is why we're concerned. And, oh, yeah, they're also safe havens, but, you know, we can't we got to close the schools. Yeah, they're safe, but they're not safe. In what's otherwise an absolute apocalyptic meltdown of New York City for those who 
live in or near New York City as I do and have been here most of my life, uh, the one tiny bit of solace in this dismal, otherwise uh, depressing scenario is the internecine fighting between Cuomo and de Blasio. That's the one sort of bright point that many of us can have to point to is that at least these two uh, men who have both uh, authored and defended such horrible policies, primarily the nursing home order from Governor Cuomo to send Oof. sick COVID positive patients right into the place with the most vulnerable population, meaning the old folks in nursing homes. Uh, but that and many other terrible decisions uh, ha have, have come from these two people. So to at least see them bickering amongst each other uh, between the two of them is at least well, some uh, did you see cuomo on msnbc where he was talking with the reporter and saying you know we we're not seeing spread in the schools cuomo we're not seeing spread in the schools you see a very low percentage yeah. of positivity in the schools this was four days ago so the reporter goes um oh and then so cuomo uh, follows up with that and, and continues by saying, so even though you have a jurisdiction that may be at 3%, that doesn't mean the schools are what's spreading it. And then he, and then, so the reporter's like, so why close the schools? If the schools yeah. aren't the problem, well, why would you do that to parents? Yeah. Cuomo says, well, because of the agreement, the local school districts consulted their parents, the teachers at the time, the teachers union at the time, Thank and you. they came up with an agreement. Well, yeah, that's the agreement. It doesn't make any sense, but that was, that was the agreement. <laughs> Let's talk about these lists of stakeholders that they talk to. Uh, there's one this one group and another group and another group and another group. Oh, and by the way, the teachers union and another group. And uh, look <laughs> at this giant list of people we talk to. And so they all came to this agreement that we should close the schools down. Yeah, really? Everybody can? If it, parents, if it was the, really? If it was the parents, then you can just open the schools and then give the parents a choice of whether to return or not. Thank That's you. That's the... It wasn't the parents. It was, it was the uh, employees in the system and the unions. Thank you. Um, but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, uh, Dr. DeAngelis. You know, so there was a question. The question, I believe the question was, have you signed up for the Random Assignment podcast? I want to talk yeah. about that question. And uh, the, the question of, of have you signed up for the Random Assignment podcast, you went on Facebook and you put up a picture and you said you put up a picture that said, she said yes, which I'm assuming oh. was when you asked your beautiful girlfriend, Cassidy, if she had subscribed to the Random Assignment podcast and you were reporting that she said yes. Yes, yes, that you've uh, you've uh, subscribed. Well, of, course she, subscribed. of course she watches the podcast. Was, was there another question <laughs> that you also posed to Cassidy? And I'm going to get red and, uh, and whatnot. But yeah, we've been together six years now and now I can't call her my girlfriend anymore. She's uh, my fiance. And here's a picture of us from uh, that night. So congratulations oh, happiest, from happiest, the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, we went to a nice restaurant here in DC and quick little story. Uh, no, I'm not going to give you the, the, I'm not going to give you the details because th there's, there's other details that we'll talk about off, off the record. Okay. Well, so in a nutshell, <laughs> did you, did you propose at the restaurant? Was at it the restaurant? Yes. Okay, and it, it, right. it, went, it went, went, went well. And um, it's a uh, super happy time to be alive. Okay. Well, congratulate for on behalf of, of the sprawling ed reform and school choice community that you have helped foster, Corey, this year more than anyone else. Let's face it. Let's let's be let's be clear. Uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. And you've met Cassidy before, right? Do you approve? I had the honor of hanging out and uh, doing at a casino with a little In gambling. Vegas. And that's right. Yeah. What, co was, what conference was that? Freedom Fest. It when we had our encounter with um, 
taking down public education, or it was the case against what what was the name of the debate? Um, you got me on the phrasing, was, but the debate was it was a school choice debate, yeah. and it was uh, part of that invoked the question of data showing school choice was effective, and data cited by our adversary. Uh, was not what you call random assignment data. Some of it was. Oh, um, and they didn't really. They, they, so that, they responded by saying, why, why does it matter if you use a random assignment or not, right? What difference does it make? Well, because it. you can tell it's causal. That's I thought right. you were the scientist. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's do some stories. Uh, do you want to start off? Yeah, so we just okay. hit on the uh, the Blasio stuff. But uh, I, another thing that I think is big that we have to hit on right away is um, the information that came out from Biden's policy director. So before this, you know, we had talked for weeks about how, you know, Biden has had said stuff about how, you know, Betsy DeVos's whole notion from charter schools to this would be gone, um, about how he felt the same way about charter schools, the same way that the teachers unions felt about charter schools. We talked about how he was thinking about appointing um, one of the two top teachers union presidents in the in the United States as educa education secretary. We also talked about how four people on his transition team uh, for the Department of Education are from the two largest teachers unions. And now we have quotes coming out from an interview uh, that's posted at the Education Writers Association, an interview with Biden's policy director, uh, last name, uh, I think her name is Steph Feldman. And here's some of the quotes that I pulled out and put on Twitter. One being, Biden will make sure that we stop funding for charter schools that don't provide results. And so, I mean, the one, the, the first response that I had to that was, well, if they're not providing results, then why are millions of families choosing them? And the obvious answer is they are providing results. And then the second question that I had was, well, I wonder if he plans on pulling funding from the failing government schools too, or the failing district schools. And um, before I got through the entire interview, I saw that uh, Feldman actually did respond to a question about this. And of course, with the charter schools, well, they'll lose money if they're quote unquote underperforming, but the district schools, ah, they're just under-resourced. They need more money. And uh, in the same interview, Biden's policy director said on the one hand, if charter schools aren't getting the right results, by by our definition, they lose money. But if the government schools aren't getting the right results by the same definition, they deserve more money because they don't have resources. And that's interesting because if anything, the charter schools get less money on a per people basis than the traditional public schools. A so it's less. just, I mean, it's just what I can go over more quotes that I thought were ridiculous before I get your response, Bob. But here, you know, here's another one. Biden will ban for-profit charter schools from receiving federal funding because uh, no one should be getting rich by taking advantage of our kids. And my quick response is, you know, giving families a choice isn't taking advantage of them. Taking advantage of them is forcing them into a school that's not working for them. And we shouldn't pretend like people aren't profiting from the compulsory government school system that we have today that traps people into failing schools. Profit isn't a bad thing in, in, in my eyes. It's only bad when you force people into your institution and that leads to a profit. But if you're profiting off of voluntary schooling selections that people desire and that pe they prefer, that's not a bad form of profit. And the last thing I think they uh, said was, which is another huge regulation of charter schools from coming from the federal government, Biden's policy director, again, quote, 
We'll we will require every charter school to be authorized and held accountable by democratically elected bodies like school boards and also held to the same standards of transparency and accountability as all public schools. To me, this is a, a way to have, uh, for example, if we, uh, I like to use analogies, it's, it's pretty much allowing um, McDonald's to determine whether a, uh, a, Burger King, a Burger King should be able to open up in a particular location or if they should be able to expand their services in a particular area. That's an obvious conflict of interest. And it's a way for the government schools to regulate their competition, which we've seen earlier this year in Buffalo, New York. Remember, one of the highest performing charter schools, the New York Board of Regents voted to close down one of the highest performing charter schools. And, you know, when asked about why that was the case, I think they said something along the lines, well, well you know, the public schools are hurting for money. And so it wasn't about results, right? It's, it's about protecting the monopoly. Well, look, the for-profit thing, you correctly point out, there's nothing wrong with profits, but it is part of the normal playbook we've seen for many years, maybe decades, where they'll say, look, profit, bad. Oh, these for-profit schools. And they blithely ignore the billions of dollars of profits that are generated every year by the traditional public schools, for-profit insurance uh, companies, for-profit um uh, textbook companies benefit, all kinds of for-profit uh, bus companies and uh, con building contractors that build new buildings or repair buildings or uh, even in some places for-profit uh, substitute teacher service providers. Uh, all kinds of, there's gigantic sprawling for-profit industries that all are suckling, if I may say, at the, uh, you know, at the traditional public school, you know, banquet. And yet that it gets kind of quietly ignored as if that if that's all somehow, I don't know, all, all run by 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 poverty fueled angels who want no money themselves because they are, you know, taking vows of poverty. No, in fact, I one time I've told the story uh, a few times, but I, I was uh, waiting to talk to a principal in a traditional public school. And there was another woman in the same waiting room. And I said, what are you waiting here? And she was waiting because she runs a company that teaches the teachers how to teach reading better. So these are all allegedly highly qualified teachers. They've all got master's degrees because we have these top-down requirements that they all got to just sit in, you know, these rubber stamp certifications and these sometimes worthless master's degrees. And yet there's still a private company coming in to teach the teachers how to teach reading. And is, is anyone, do you think like this person who gave this quote about, oh, well, we in the Biden administration are going to end these for-profit charters. You think they're worried about those kind of for-profit people? Not at all. They no, it's, those I mean, it's, 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 just, it's just another way to take away money from the competition of the traditional public schools. And you're right. Yeah, they're, they're, tr traditional public schools profit in a way through force, but then they also have for-profit providers like textbook companies and other services so I mean, computers this is just, and playground equipment and band instruments and for-profit uh, uniforms and it, it's on, it goes on and on. Yeah, and obviously. I mean, and I mean, they revealed themselves in that interview where the reporter asked them, you know, what happens to charter schools that don't provide results and what happens to the government schools that don't provide results, and they, for them to answer that question two different ways reveals what their true intentions are. It's just, we're, we're going to, we just want more money for the government schools and we want to take away all money from the charter schools. I mean, look, a, a for-profit charter school, 
And technically, and National Alliance likes to bust this myth all the time, National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, is that they say there's no such thing as a for-profit charter school. It doesn't really matter to me. I don't think profit is a bad thing if it's if it's if it's made through choice. But well, the they are managed by for profit. They are man. There are some that are managed by for profit entities, uh, but the charter right. school itself is not for profit. But even then, only about twelve percent are managed by for profit entities. Right. But I mean, I think this the National Alliance actually does say that that there are some by their definitions there are uh, some as you say twelve percent. But that said, like again, it's. Um, it, it, the, the distinctions become so murky because you'll have a nonprofit charter board and then they will hire a teacher staffing company that is the for-profit company. And then, so the teachers then come through that. So what is it for-profit or not? Uh, it becomes harder mm -hmm. and harder to distinguish, you know, where your check actually comes from and whether that group, and eventually like, does it really matter if the kid is learning it, or not it shouldn't. learning? I mean, what, yeah. yeah. What if, what if you find that the for-profit charter school is really knocking it out of the park and providing these results that you're saying are so important and let's say they're doing better than all the, the schools in the area. They're going to lose all their funding and, and right. children are going to miss out on a better education just because of the label as being the a for-profit. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's nuts that they're actually now admitting that they're, they're trying to take some action to limit so many children's opportunities in charter schools. This, this could be a bumpy ride going forward um, uh, in, in, the, in the world of, of school choice. So I think that's it on that story. So you and I also talk, we talk a lot, of course, about policy stories and things like, you know, teacher unions and things like political um, punditry and pronouncements, as you just said. And it's always good to be reminded of how many millions of parents are struggling right now with this issue of where to send their kids to school. And so a report came out, and this, again, is a... Sometimes uh, the media surprises me a little bit. We're seeing some of these reports starting to take the parents' side. But a report came out showing how the pandemic is impacting children's mental health. And it was aired on, today, on the Today Show, the NBC Today Show. So I want to start by just showing some of that video. 46 teenagers in California, ages 14 to 17, talked with researchers and kept journals. Raise your hand if you'd like to go back to in-person learning. With the permission of their parents, Serena and her brother Isaac, Muna and Marley came out of anonymity to talk with us. I'm definitely not as happy as I used to be. I'm always talking to people, socializing, so that's like a big part what makes me happy. I can't do that as much, so yeah. That's hard. The report finds teens are experiencing tremendous loss due to school closure and social isolation. Muna misses cheerleading. I'm not looking forward to going to like competitions or games and things like that. In the study, those who had diagnosed disorders before the pandemic were now more symptomatic, and all of the teens were showing signs of minor depression, anxiety, and worry. 65% said they got little to no exercise over one week, and most are connecting with friends through social media and gaming, often spending hours online. One boy in the report said, my use of social media is to numb my feeling, not feel something else. So raise your hand if you spend more time on screens now than you used to. Everybody. 65% getting no exercise at all in not just a day, but an entire week. And this is a pretty sizable report. They, they had participants in 11 different counties in California. And so they had four key findings. One, the Today Show pointed out, the teens are experiencing a tremendous loss due to school closure and social isolation. Number two, 
teens have limited opportunity to form unique identities. They're all just logged in doing the logged in homework. So part of identity forming, which is very important in your teenage years in particular, seems to have been you know, excised by this process. Number three, teens using social media and gaming as a main way to meet their social needs. But I think most of us has a, have a sense that that alone is not complete. And number four, the extent of their technology use and its impact are not obvious even to the even to those closest to the teens, meaning many of their parents and and siblings, et cetera, are are not really seeing the impact for necessarily what it is until you sit and interview them and ask them some of these questions. And the point being that that, uh, you know, this is the opposite of the teachers union narrative. This is really the parent narrative. So again, we're seeing the mainstream media start to kind of dip their toe in the water of opposing the teacher union narrative. Mm -hmm. But uh, that said, uh, it seems to me, don't you think, Corey, that like a lot of sadness and depression may result from this, these many months of lockdown? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, that, that was something I was going to point out that it it's not that uh, it, it, it's hard to disentangle whether this is because of schooling and not having schooling in person. And from the lockdowns themselves, the lockdowns have lots of negative effects on people's uh, well-being. And part of it's, you know, you're not able to have the choice to return to a school and interact with people. But then even outside of school, you may have restrictions in place that are just taking a toll on people. It's been a long time. And um, something that I pointed out yesterday is that uh, one school district, Howard County, uh, Howard County in Maryland, just announced, and they just voted, I think it was like a 5-4 vote, barely passed it, that they're not going to reopen schools in person until at least April 15th. So that is the first place that I've seen that will be officially over a year of school closures for students in that in that location. And, and I, I, I bet you we're going to see more. I, bet you I we're think it's an more. important point. It, it's, uh, you know, in fairness to the others, it's really not just schools, right? A kid could be an online student and in a normal, you know, a year ago could have been an online student and still then gone out with a friend to the mall <laughs> or, you know, shopping or something, or at least skateboarding or riding a bike or like doing more, more social group activities, even if they were in online school. So, right. So there are those factors too. But, I mean, um, this is, again, though, this is why I think that we should just give families their money back. If your school's not open and give them their money back and let them pick something else. And if the virtual thing works, then fine. The virtual thing might work for a lot of families and the public schools might be doing a good job with it. But uh, for a lot of families, um, uh, it, it might not be the best solution. And for particular students, there might be mental health issues going on. Let the money follow the child and let them find some type of environment that works for them. One size doesn't fit all. So this is another good reason to fund the students directly. Another story that I thought was interesting that just uh, I just shared a couple of days ago is that in California, Burbank Public Schools banned five books from their curriculum. Check this out, Bob. I saw your tweet on that. To Kill a Mockingbird, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Of Mice and Men, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and The K. They are banned until further notice. There's a uh, an article in LA Times, and there's also an LA uh, a Newsweek article about this. Um, but uh, the, the the skinny is that uh, five parents complained about uh, the, the the school book curriculum, and you know um, 
to, I mean, to Kill they a Mockingbird is yeah, over racism concerns? I, the whole I mean, premise of the book is anti-racism. I mean, it's, it's, like a, it's like a face plant happening. I don't know. I, it's, a, it's some sort of it's well, disbelief. Well, I just can't even believe I'm reading this. A couple of groups were quoted in this as well, where um, there's actually a petition to not ban the books. But a lot of the people were saying, look, these, you know, these books can teach you to be anti-racist. You can learn if you, you know, if, if there, there might be a problem with how the teacher is, is dealing with the curriculum, but uh, these books in particular can be very useful in conversations about how not to be racist. And if there's, if there's an issue with the teacher, that's a, that's a separate issue. It's not an issue with the book per se. Yes. And then the fact, the other step is to say, it's one thing to say, don't teach it in the curriculum. Uh, like we're not going to assign uh, every teacher to have to teach these books, mm -hmm. but then to ban the books is to is another whole step from not assigning. Right. Like that yeah, sounds they're, like they're not, they're not saying that, uh, Oh, you just, you no longer have to use this anymore. Like it's not part of the curriculum anymore. They're saying, even if you want it to be, uh, used in your classroom, how oh, you can't do so. And, you know, th this is subject to change, obviously. Everything's subject to change. But as of right now, they're banned. They, they cannot be used until further notice. I mean, again, Huckleberry Finn, it's similar. I mean, the the, the idea that these books are, it's just, it's, it's just Orwellian. It's Orwellian I mean, I, doublespeak. I, Bob, I, t I tend to think that, uh, you know, the, these, the teachers should have the choice to use these books in their curriculum um, and in the most, in, for most cases, they can be a positive conversation, but uh, it could turn out bad. And I can see kind of the arguments on the other side, but this is another argument, you know, this is another point that uh, we make often on this show is that one size doesn't fit all and uh, people have differences in values. There may be some parents who really, really, really don't like these books for whatever reason, and they don't want their child exposed to those books for whatever reason, and they should be able to choose a different school that doesn't use these particular books, but they shouldn't be able to use their, um, uh, their complaints and their, uh, <laughs> their power through the school board to block other families from being able to have their children benefit from those books. That's the problem here that we're forcing everybody into a system where not, no one's going to be able to, or you're not going to get everybody on the same page to agree on things, especially when there's, um, you know, value-based judgments to be made. It almost seems to me like we're sitting in some sort of coincidental confluence of two things that didn't need to happen at the same time, but are happening at the same time. You have these culture wars emerging where people will never, apparently looks to me like, will just never agree about certain things like transgenderism. Can uh, a child just declare that they are a different gender and the adults, should the adults or should, you know, have to honor that or, uh, Issues like this, issues of whether Huckleberry Finn or To Kill a Mockingbird are racist materials or not. And, and there seem to be people on both sides in tractable positions. That seems to be a huge school choice motivating argument. These culture wars are adding up. There's more of the issues all the time, it seems. At the same time, you have this coronavirus thing with these yeah. lockdowns where just this other issue is a medical issue. And is it safe to have kids together or is it safe for the teacher? Is everyone going to get sick? Or 
how, you know, what are the standards for what percentage of infection rate does require closure of the schools? And everyone seems to have a different metric on that. Also a driver of increased school choice, I would think. So it's it's somehow, I don't know, just, is it a coincidence? It just seems to both be happening at once. It's as if 10 and 20 years from now, we'll look back on this era and say, wow, that's really when school choice leapt forward because you had all these reasons why people could not get along. And, you know, the fact is, is when you force, you know, when you force power top down and consolidate power into like one answer to a whole bunch of questions, there is, and, and there isn't there isn't one right answer to all these questions, right? right. And ultimately, the majority gets to inflict their will on the on the minority, and in some cases, a a small but loud crowd gets to inflict their will on the majority. And it shouldn't be like that, you know. We should all be able to accept that other people have different views on particular things. And I, sh we should be happy to allow other families to um, educate their children in the way that they see fit, as long as they're not doing real harm to those children. And at the same time, we should be allowed to send our child to a particular school that has the values that are being shared in the way that is aligned with our families. We shouldn't want to force other people's families to do particular things. Everybody should be able to go their own way, as long as, again, there's not real harm going on to where the, the government needs to step in as a result of those choices. Indeed. So now let's turn to the, uh, the title was media bias. You still have the special graphic, the Kate graphic for the show. Yeah, let's check it out. Ooh, they keep that. getting better and better. Let's just close the schools. Look at that. Close the school. Although some of the New York Times reporters have been good on this, you know, that they're, they're pointing out that schools aren't super spreaders and that, uh, you know, it's it seems just kind of weird how um, New York City schools are are doing this kind of tug and tug of war uh, with with the families, and you know, just today they're closing the dang schools again, even though there's not transmission much transmission in the schools, and it's not um, there isn't evidence of it increasing the 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 rates of the infection overall, but they're still closing the schools, even based on the the citywide average of three three point zero zero percent. Okay, so this is my own fault, though, but the actual, the bigger story of media bias I have this week is a, a school choice, charter school story. But let's do the one about the closure, open school, closed school one. That's the one from Tennessee. So I wanted to show you that. That's a video news story uh, that comes, well, it's basically about the statewide Tennessee uh, Teachers Union. And yes, there's the, the headline there asking Governor Lee to give more COVID-19 protections. Well, that sounds a little more- protection. Innocent and innocuous. So just give protection. Well, who's going to be against protections? What are yeah. you against protections, Corey? No, Please. protections good. Give people, yeah, it's all, give, give them protections. That's all this is. If you could play the video of the Tennessee, let's start from there. Tennessee's largest teacher union is calling on Governor Bill Lee to issue a statewide mask mandate for all schools. In a letter to the governor, Tennessee Education Association President Beth Brown expressed concerns about the number of COVID-19 cases among educators compared to the communities they serve. Some of the recommendations listed in the letter include the mask mandate, establishing stricter guidance for when schools should go virtual, and providing hazard duty pay for all staff directly involved with Students. For a full look at the TEA's letter and full list of recommendations, head to our website, wate.com. 
So what piqued my interest in that one is when they said hazard uh -huh. pay. We have these lists of things. Oh, by the way, you should have some more masks. And by the way, you should have some sort of defined infection rate, which closes schools. And you should have all this, this thing and that thing. Oh, and one last thing. Uh, also, just uh, not, a, not that important. Just one last thing. Hazard pay for teachers. And I'm like, wait, what? So I went on and I looked up the actual data behind this. And mm. of course, that's it. I don't know if you can zoom in on that. No, I, I saw it when I, when the video was uh, playing point. Yeah, yeah. According to their, Are you serious? According to their own data, you see that, see there's, if there's a, well, there's that, but actually if you, if you scroll up, you see the active rate staff column. Yeah. So up above is that 0.5%. That was back in October. Yep. And then if you scroll down, yeah, October 22nd, you scroll down some three weeks later or some odd, yep. uh, something like that, you then see the current active rate staff. Uh, and this is the basis for this uh, set of demands and requests. It went from 0.5% to 0.6%. I, I know that according to the NAEP, only 24% of American 12th graders are proficient in math. So let me clear this up for any who might be math challenged. Is this 60%, Bob? Is this 60% or is this? <laughs> right, right, no, Can no. We move the decimal decimal point. Yes, this, what this means, ladies and gentlemen, to be perfectly clear, is that the infection rate in these Tennessee teachers went from five out of 1,000 to six out of 1,000. That is the difference between 0.5% and 0.6%. One out of 1,000 was the increase, okay? And it went from five to six out of 1,000. Because of that, which apparently they are defined. Now, let's, we're tabling the fact that many cases in the in the of COVID-19 are asymptomatic and other cases have extremely mild symptoms. So the majority of cases, in fact, the overwhelming majority of cases have either mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. But even if we pretend, we pretend that every case is a dire, serious situation, which it is clearly not, we are talking about an increase of one in 1,000. That's the increase from five out of 1,000 to six out of 1,000. Mm -hmm, and do mm -hmm. we get that in the news report? Where is that in the news report? Why didn't that anchor say, yes, yep. the teachers union is asking for this hazard pay because the infection rate went from five out of 1,000 to six out of 1,000. All right, now we'll go to our sports guy, Jim, who's gonna, <laughs> I guess there's no sports happening. I'm, su I'm surprised they didn't say, I'm surprised they didn't say there's a 20% increase <laughs> right. from last month. I mean, because technically that would be true, but it would be highly misleading because it's right. from 0.5 to 0.6. Yeah, it's, it's a very low base to begin with. Yeah. Um, Can you just include that number in the report, dear television writer? Like, how about you do that instead of what they are doing, which is this kind of vague, cloud-like, kind of uh, bulbous, sort of like ambiguous feeling-oriented report. Oh, this, this scary thing is happening, and now we just wish we'd had protections from the scary thing, and that's what the union is just asking for that. Like, uh, they, they don't... The, in other words, the... The actual percentage is a number. It's something you would think about. Whereas this feeling stuff is this kind of, if that is your uh, motivation, you are going to avoid things like numerical quanti quantifying. You're going to focus on things like vague words to you know, express general anxieties, things like that. So that's when I, when I thought about media bias, and I know this is becoming a theme, isn't it? Because I know next last week we talked about Lauren Kammer of U.S. News and World Report that yep. I thought did a very uh, bad job in one story. 
Other times she does a really good job. But at any rate, I, that's, that, I wanted to present that to you, Corey. Yeah, it's amazing. I hadn't seen that one yet. And and on the topic of unions, I wanted to point out that uh, D.C. public schools just reached reached a tentative agreement with the teachers union. Um, I tweeted about this uh, just a few days ago. No teachers in D.C. public schools will be required to turn to, to schools through January 2021. And even starting in January 2021, it's just, you know, based on demand. But through January 2021, no teachers returning. I noted how DC public schools were supposed to open uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, November 9th. And I thought it was interesting in this article in the Washington Post, a quote from the teachers union president in Washington, DC, is they had the nerve to say, well, we didn't get everything we wanted, but I'm okay with it. And we'll wait to see how our members feel. So yeah, we'll do it, but you know, maybe maybe our members won't even be happy with returning uh, in January 2021. So that's the latest in DC. And then in Rhode Island, uh, the teachers unions uh, pushed to stop in-person instruction uh, and and called it a holiday pause. In Fairfax County public schools, uh, they were supposed to return to schools uh, just uh, earlier this week. And uh, they just announced that that's no longer happening. The, the students who were supposed to return uh, earlier this week are, will remain virtual until at least uh, November um, 30th. And that was supposed to be just, uh, that was just supposed to be you know, pre-K students, kindergarten students, and some of the students with certain special needs. So this is our very young students in particular that we're talking about, and they delayed their reopening as well. And then latest... There's a study from our friend uh, Will Flanders at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Similar to my study at the national level, he did it and zoomed in in Wisconsin and found that unionized unionized school districts in Wisconsin were significantly less likely to reopen in person um, than, than, than school districts that did, were not unionized. And he also found no relationship, at least a statistical relate, no statistical relationship between COVID cases per capita in the county and the reopening plans of the schools. So the takeaway there is the school reopenings are linked to politics and power and union, unions, yeah. but not uh, school safety. It's something, it was, all of us had that sense anyway, and then you proved it uh, through data and then, and then so did the Wisconsin uh, Law and Liberty Group. It's uh, so, surprise, surprise, something we pre pretty much already knew anyway, but it was union union power that tends to drive these decisions. This is the third study that has found that I, I found it first uh, with the Christos Macritus at the, um, uh, through Social Science Research Network, we, we released it. And then like uh, later that month at Brown University, uh, Michael Hartney and his uh, co-author released a similar study, different database, same findings, the union's um, were uh, successful in preventing schools from reopening in person. And now we have the state level analysis from Wisconsin yeah. finding you know the what same. That, that makes me think of something. This is, wasn't in the plan, but maybe if you, if you could go to my Twitter, actually, and go down yep. to the third tweet, something I just came across that I think pertains to this. When, when districts uh, say, hey, we're going to extend this remote learning thing, it's going to be Four, four more months or six more months or 12 more months or however far they expand it and they extend the, the remote learning and people go, oh, well, okay. So if you scroll down to the third one, I just want to show you something that I came across, which is uh, that one there, which is kind of an unintended consequences, what I was calling it. Mm -hmm. And 
you can see what the what the actually the woman Jenny wrote. If you could pop that tweet that tweet up that was responding, she says, oh, "This is nice. my seventh grader's language arts class today was canceled. Why? Her teacher said she's now living in the forest and didn't have <laughs> adequate internet to host. I'm on vacation and I don't want to show up." That's right. So this is a screen grab from the actual teacher saying, hey, you know, I just don't have that great internet right now. So you're on your own today, kids. Part of this, what, and my response to all of this is, when you reduce accountability because you say, oh, we can't hold teachers accountable. They don't have the normal in-person scenario. So let's have zero accountability. You end up getting these unintended consequences. These kinds of situations are not brought up when People are first proposing, let's lower the accountability standards because you don't have in-person. But in fact, what I wrote there, they don't warn parents in advance about the unintended consequences. Some will develop a cavalier attitude. Some teachers, in other words, will develop a cavalier attitude about your child. Funding families directly provides bottom-up accountability because they can walk away. Um, but you have these cases where if some, now not all, uh, people will, people love you know, that the establishment loves treating all teachers as if they're identical, replaceable widgets. I say they're not. There's a huge distribution of teacher quality, mm -hmm. but there is a cohort of low quality teachers who will take this new freedom of no accountability because, hey, we've delayed schools. It's all online. They'll go to the forest on a certain day like this. This is rare because we actually have someone who bothered to tweet the screen grab, but it is emblematic of what happens when oh, it's okay, we'll just have no standards. And by the way, you also can't leave if you're a family. Yep, that's, that's the main All right, problem. so let me let me uh, hit on now my other um, media bias story. This is just straight down. Everyone will know exactly what I'm responding to when you see this video. Construction is underway of a new charter school in San Pablo, and many people who live nearby are not happy about it. Their primary complaint, there's already another school, Alamacani Elementary, right across the street. News for Jacks reporter Joe McLean is joining us live from San Pablo, where he's been hearing a lot of complaints and not just from residents. Joe? Right, the PTA president, the advisory board of Alamakani uh, Elementary School say they were shocked, they were concerned when they saw this construction project get underway last week. You can see it's ongoing right now. And you weren't kidding, Tom, when you said right across the street, here's their campus. They say it's right across the street and that's gonna create a lot of problems. It's gonna draw uh, resources, funding, and it's gonna bring our student enrollment down and it could very much possibly affect our teachers. Everyone is worried about this school coming across the street from our, our school. The 2000 block of San Pablo Road on the south side is the planned site of a new River City Science Academy charter school campus set to open late next year right across the street from Alamakani Elementary School, where Lisa Britt heads the PTA. We had no idea that the, um, this charter school was coming across the street. Um, we found out, I think it was Tuesday, when the trees started falling down. The main concerns? First, that the new school will siphon off the student population, which already took a hit because of COVID-19. 855 students were enrolled last year. 803 are enrolled this year. The new River City Science Academy is projecting 524 students in its first year and expand to 870 students over the next five years. Their attempt to attract our already diminishing student population will also reduce our funding and the resources 
and the number of teachers. The teachers at Alma County are extremely concerned. Stakeholders tell me they were also frustrated that the school board signed off on the project so close to an existing school, seemingly without notice. The application for the school was not required to give a specific campus site. They're sneaking in the back door. This is all about money. This is not about students. They want to defund public school education. That is the goal. People are going to lose our schools, leave our schools voluntarily. We're going to lose money. They're so concerned about money, but I'm the only one talking about money this entire time. <laughs> yeah, that and a news organization that interviews a PTA president. I guess that's a teacher who's the PTA president. Then, uh, you know, person after person saying, oh, it's going to drain money, siphon money away. This is terrible. And it's, it's as if the fact it's across the street has any bearing on educational decisions or what's best for children. It's like, oh, how dare they locate there? They're going to show up, show what about, us up being what so about close. The parents? Why aren't the parents included in this conversation? No, right. The point is, is this covered, they, this reporter, the one thing I will say is, the, not in that uh, excerpt, but the reporter did say they reached out to the people forming the charter school who, who had not gotten back to them yet. That's the one thing the reporter said. But the mm -hmm. fact that just ordinary parents weren't asked about this in terms of maybe, or even the reporter himself could have ex at least expressed the idea that yeah. if no parents choose this charter school, it will have no students. <laughs> the only way, it and the parents don't make a single penny by choosing the charter school, their only motive in choosing the charter school is a better education for their children. The, they can't even, even if you include, again, like all that other side, you can't even include also something to express the value of choice. So I just saw that story and I was like, oh, please, how many more interviews are you going to line up from workers and employees of the existing schools talking about how awful this is that a new charter school is being built? School choice doesn't defund public schools. Public schools defund families. There's the Giving families that... the option to choose their grocery store does not defund Walmart because the money doesn't belong to Walmart. The money doesn't belong to the public school. It's supposed to be for the child. I'm going to have to call this reporter up, actually. I just got that idea just yeah. now. I should call him tomorrow and be like, listen, if you do another story like this, we have an idea for you. We're not saying make it all about our point of view, but how about you have at least... I don't 50, know. 50 or 30. A little bit of a, yeah, right, exactly. All right. So that was, uh, that was a little more media bias for you guys. Yeah. The last, the last story that I have that I brought to the table, at least is that we're seeing a lot of the, uh, um, county level governments shutting down public and private schools. And, you know, they're saying it's because of health concerns, obviously, but they're waiting until Thanksgiving to do it. And it makes me wonder, like if it's so important that that it's you, know, you need to close oh, the schools, why why wouldn't you just do it right now? Why would you wait until people are on Thanksgiving break to do that if it is? There's an really immediate special. health crisis emergency. Let's handle it in a, a week. Let's handle it by extend, <laughs> extending Thanksgiving break through the end of uh, until January. But the three places that I've seen is um, all public and private schools were closed. Uh, ordered to close in Racine, Wisconsin. As you can see in the second tweet, it lasts from November 27th through January 15th. And this is private schools too. That's the most uh, interesting part. I also saw information from Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Their public and private schools will similarly be um, 
parents were protesting in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, that to that yeah. to closure too. Although it was just two weeks, but two yeah. weeks for this time, who knows how many after that? Well, parents were protesting in New York City as well. Um, they they didn't. Uh, New York City, as far as I can tell, isn't forcing the private schools to close. I think it's just for the public schools. That was the announcement today. But be, before this announcement, parents were thinking. Uh, or anticipating that the, the governor or, or uh, Mayor de Blasio was going to close the schools this this week, which is what he actually did. And they actually um, organized uh, a group of parents to protest and to, to, to not close the schools again, but that didn't really work as we can tell. And then one other place that I saw that closed down public and private is Marion County, Indiana, which includes Indianapolis. So those are three places that are that have announced that, you know, at least in a couple of weeks, they're going to start closing public and private schools. And in all of those locations, I didn't see anything about daycares, though. It, that doesn't mean that the daycares aren't going to be ordered to close, but I certainly didn't see any evidence that daycares were going to be closed, which begs the question, why is it okay to have a daycare open, but not a private school? You know, one of the dumbest things I see in a lot of states is these new rules about hey now we're gonna like close restaurants earlier? Have you heard about this place? Yeah, and, and, and the gyms too. Like that makes it more dangerous. If your gym closes at 10 p.m., all Thank the people you. that would have gotten and gone at 11 now Thank they're gonna you. go at 9:30, and so now you're, you're great you're minds speaking. think alike. That occurred to me too, Corey. I'm like, wait a minute. So you're gonna have you're gonna cram people in a shorter amount of time. There'll be more people going at the same. Yeah, keep it's the bars insane. open all night. Keep, keep the right. restaurants open until 2 a.m. Right. <laughs> uh, let me finish now with a story that's uh, heading back out west. And this is one. I don't know if I have anything intelligent to add beyond the headline of the story. Yep. But it's called school districts. It's from Reason, by the way. School districts decide great, great Asians outlet. aren't. Yeah, exactly. School district decides Asians are not students of color. Okay. So this is uh, out of Washington State. The North. Thurston Public Schools, uh, which oversees some 16,000 students, decided to lump Asians in with white students. You know, we need to tell this to George Takei, by the way, of a Star Trek fame, who was uh, who was in a in a camp during World War II because all of the Japanese Americans were basically forced to, uh, you know, forced to live in a camp during by, in the United States. Uh, we need to explain to him that Asians are now officially declared white based on this, uh, this, this school district. But, uh, you know, look, I wanted to read this part. The report also, and it refers to a report that came out, I guess. They, the report also me, uh, measured students of poverty. Now, that's separate from skin color, right? And those who qualified for free or reduced cost lunches uh, against the non-poverty students and unsurprisingly found a much more significant achievement gap. Students of poverty performed 28% worse on math tests, for instance. This socioeconomic category captures something real and meaningful in a way that gerrymandered race categories do not. In a world of exploding mixed race population, this, we're going to put you in some sort of a skin color group, whether you like it or not, is going to become increasingly absurd because it will be harder and harder, especially once you start awarding benefits based on which racial group you decide to throw somebody in if they're mixed race, this will become crazier. The idea is, yes, you can at least measure 
home household income, that's something that is real. That can be measured and is real. Race cannot be measured. It is essentially a fiction and it's something that we cannot base public policy decisions on going forward. I'm repeating myself from other shows, but I just saw this thing about the Asians getting mixed in. It looks like they rescinded that decision. And uh, here's a a statement from the public school district. Oh, there's an update? Concerning our previous student growth report, one of our district's plan, you know, strategic plans is the continuous growth, yada, yada. We evaluated the achievement data by students of color and student of poverty. In the document, we grouped white and Asian students together. Upon reflection and response by members of the Asian American community, we will change how we look at achievement data and appreciate the feedback we received. We apologize for the negative impact we have caused and remove the monitoring report from our website. So when you go to Robbie's uh, column here and try to click on the report, yeah. That reason it takes you to this apology statement instead of the report. So now the report's not even on the website anymore. It's a, oh, it's just a, and they put so it on the same like URL as the report. Yeah, yeah. It's like they they decided to use. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that update, Corey. I didn't see that. Well, that's I, I mean, I either. guess that's some good it. news. But it's look, it's one district in Washington State, but uh, still, um, you know, the point remains. I, I think classifying people by it's it's it feels like it's from a century ago. Classifying people by their skin color, treat people as individuals. How about that? That's my that that's the people say you're going to die on that hill. That's the hill I'm going to die on. I'm going to die on treating people as individuals. That's you know call me old fashioned. That you know, call call me crazy. That's going to be my rule. And, and if you want to categorize people by income by household income, make the argument for that, and I'll listen. That's all the stories that we had. I mean, the one other thing that I mentioned earlier was just I thought this was absolutely crazy. Just Howard County, Maryland, keeping the schools closed till at least April fifteenth. I know. I can't keep. I year. can't remember all these districts. I mean, it's There's just so many of them. Um, I have a more important question though for you. Have you set a date? Wedding date now? Oh, okay. Hey, hey Cassidy, when are we get married? She says she doesn't know. Maybe she's going to oh. change her mind. But uh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, we have to figure it out. We'll probably do something in Texas because our immediate family is is over there in Texas. But we have to talk with them about when we're going to do it. Yeah, give us our time. We just we just got engaged. We don't need to start getting worried about planning things. Hey, it's just a cliche <laughs> question. I don't know. It's one of the questions everyone has. Anyway, so thanks again for watching, everybody. Uh, please like and subscribe and share Random Assignment with your friends and coworkers and neighbors and family members. It helps us. And we actually are been growing this show. So I'm, I'm pretty proud about that. I think it's going great. And most importantly, Corey's engaged. And Cassidy is too. So Woo-hoo. congratulations again to you. Thank you so much, Bob. And uh, I just want to thank everybody for consistently watching this podcast each week, this video podcast, and, and listening in audio format. Again, yes, share the podcast, this Random Assignment podcast. Subscribe to it. Thank you all so much for coming out. This was the uh, Random Assignment podcast with uh, myself, Corey DeAngelis, and Bob Bowden.